So, uh, so my name is Eric, and I'm, I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, this is the second week in this series we're calling Origins, where we talk about how we got to be the people that we, we are. And I was wondering, I, I, my sister sent me a picture this morning that kind of speaks to some of my origin story. I was wondering, can I share a picture with you guys? This is my dad and his brothers. Um, and she sent this to me this morning. My dad's on the far left. This is 1971. So I was uh, three somewhere where this was taken. That's at my grandparents' house. And uh, I just kind of thought it was cool. And there's a lot of pretty cool hipster type of clothing going on there for 1971. Uh, my dad's the oldest of four brothers. And, and just so you know, like the, this is my, like I said, my grandparents' house. And then up the road was my uncle's house. And then right after that was my house. So like, you know, I always talk about being, I always like people to know this. I talk about being from the city, but I grew up in the, I grew up in the sticks. We grew up kind of in a compound uh, where everybody on the street was named Case. Um, but anyway, that's just kind of my origin story. She sent that to me this morning and I was like, you know what, I'll send, I'll share that with everybody rather than make some kind of obscure reference to a baseball team that won the World Series. I don't know. Just a choice. I don't know. Go Cubs. Hey, um. So uh, we started this series last week, and uh, if you guys were, were here and, and kicked this thing off with us, we, we talked about what an origin story is, and what an origin story is in, in literature or in culture is a story that explains how you got your powers, especially if you're talking about comics or sci-fi realm, like how, how you got your powers or what sets you apart. And we talked about some of the origin stories in popular culture, you know, Batman and, and Wonder Woman and Harry Potter and so forth. And then I threw out the idea that as people of faith, we have an origin story. And we talked about how we all have a personal origin story that, that sometimes over, over time and experience and whatnot, it, uh, it sets us up to live inside a certain story. And, and I suggested that the stories we live in inform the decisions we make, you know, so that if we believe we live in a certain story, it will determine the type of actions we take as humans and individuals. But as people of faith, we actually believe that there's another larger story that's being written that is outside of ourselves, so to speak, and it's God's story, and that our story intersects with God's story in, in any manner of ways. And oftentimes, we're called to meld or adopt our story to God's story. And if you guys remember, I, I said that this, this series has a, a thesis, and I threw out this thesis for us, and I thought it'd be helpful if, if we can just read it together this morning, and we're going to do this the next couple weeks. So let's read this word together. We are set apart by the themes of creation, fall, call, and covenant. And these themes begin in Genesis, run through the Bible, are fulfilled in Jesus, and continue through to the end of Scripture. And I actually would say they, they actually go way beyond Scripture into our present day time. And we're going to be taking a look at, at something uh, that, you know, the, the title of the song alluded to is this, this episode in our story called The Fall. And The Fall, I, I want to set the stage for us a little bit. Um, you know, no, no story is a true story unless it has some moment of crisis. You know, any book that you open, any movie that you watch always has some kind of something that happens that moves the story 
along. You know, in my house, if we were watching, you know, uh, The Hobbit or Lord of the Rings, if Bilbo or Frodo never leave the Shire, there's never a movie. There's never a story to be told. They just get fat and happy hobbits. Uh, they have to go, you know, in The Hobbit, they have to go confront the, the dragon at the mountain. If in The Lord of the Rings, Frodo gets the ring. Something happens that moves the story forward. Sometimes it's tragic, uh, sometimes it's, it's not. But in our story, there is something that happens right after creation that we have always called the fall, that, that catapults our story into a whole new uh, realm. And... Uh, One of the things I want to kind of uh, let you guys know is uh, there's so many interesting things about the fall, one of which is the fact that the words the fall never occurs in in the Old Testament. You know, so we're going to talk about the fall today, and and the fall of, of humanity, the fall of mankind is a pretty heavy statement to wrap your head around, like, oh my gosh, it's this really, really significant event, and it is. But yet, there, there are some things that are buried in the scripture that, that cast such uh, beautiful, illuminating things on God and God's character and who he is. And uh, so what I want to do today is just walk through the text of Genesis 3. And uh, to set this thing in context, like I said, our story starts off, our origin story starts off with creation. You know, and if you guys were here last week, Plot points of creation. We're intimately made as reflections of God. And we're also created to govern in his name and in his ways. And uh, creation is a beautiful, beautiful thing for two chapters, for two pages of our Bible. And then on the third page in the third chapter, Genesis 3 happens. And uh, it, it, it creates a whole new level of problems for God to solve and for us to solve. So if you guys would turn with me, if you have a Bible, to Genesis 3. It's literally the second page of the Bible for most of us. Uh, we're just going to walk through the pieces of the text. And, um, and we're going to let God speak through this, uh, through this text this morning. In fact, I'm going to ask you guys to join me in prayer before we jump too far into this. You guys pray with me. Father... Uh, I just want to declare I open myself up and, uh, and I declare my dependence on you and your spirit this morning. I pray that your spirit would come into this space. Actually, uh, God, we acknowledge the spirit's presence in this place now. And God, we ask that you would open our eyes and ears to, to see and hear what you would have us to see and hear this morning. I pray that you would uh, just open us up to teach us. And we... Uh, We pray this because we need you, and we're here for you, and we're here because of you. Amen. All right, so Genesis 3, 1 through 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? The woman replied, of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. So that's the way the story starts off. In Genesis 2, we're left with this beautiful picture of of God who's created humanity and everything is working in this perfect uh, relationship with with God, with humans, with, with humans and other humans, with creation. And then all of a sudden, Genesis 3, um, the serpent shows up. 
And the serpent, um, over time, has, has been interpreted as what we would call Satan or the Satan or the devil, uh, some kind of force of evil. Now, the, the text does not actually say that the serpent is the devil, but over time, because the serpent behaves a lot of the ways that we would say uh, Satan behaves, which is he kind of manipulates people, he kind of tricks people, over time, uh, theologians and scholars and, and pastors and, and rabbis have said, you know what, Genesis 3, this sounds a lot like our adversary. Um, and what he's doing in the garden, I can't really speak to that. I don't know. These are deep, deep, deep philosophical questions. But as somebody I heard once said, uh, I don't know if the serpent was actually, I don't know what he was doing there, but what matters is what he said. And so we're going to focus on that. Um, so he comes to the woman and he says, look, uh, God, is it true that, that God said you can't eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? And the woman says, oh, of course we can eat fruit, right? It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And then she says this, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Is there a problem with that statement? What's the problem with that statement? God didn't actually say that. He said, don't eat it. God never said, don't touch it. So in this little bitty turn of events, Eve adds on to what God has said. And, uh, and the first thing that I would kind of throw out to us is that this is a great reminder that legalism doesn't really work. Okay? You could say that in this case, uh, the woman, Eve, is kind of the first legalist in the long line of legalists, myself probably being one of them, of like when there's something out there in the world that is not beneficial for me to do or to see or to, or to taste, you know? Uh, God says, for instance, and, and I don't want to make too big of a deal out of this, but God says, I believe in the Bible. So God says, look, getting drunk is not a good thing to do. It just it doesn't set anybody up for, for winning, Okay. But what you have a lot of people do is they will say, well, if God says don't get drunk, well, then I shouldn't even, I shouldn't even drink or we shouldn't even you know, talk about it. Now, understand that there's issues of addiction that a lot of us, there are things that legitimately we have to steer clear of, right? But the scriptures also say a lot of cases, hey, <laughs> the scriptures will say drink some wine, It'll help you celebrate. It actually helps with some physical things. But what you have people doing is that they say, look, there's this thing out there that, uh, that actually says, I'm not supposed to do that. But in order to not do that, I'm actually going to set some rules up so that I don't do this and I don't do that and I don't do this. But actually what it, it usually ends up doing is it sets us up for failure. And I think what you're going to actually see, I'll kind of fast forward in the story because I think what you could actually see playing out in, in Eve's life is that she says, no, no, no. God said not to touch the tree. But eventually, you know what she's going to do? She's going to touch the tree. And when nothing happens and you take that first step and you're like, well, nothing happened. Well, if nothing happened with this rule that I set up, maybe I can just go the whole way. The other thing that I find interesting about these first three verses is, hello, talking snake. Okay, like if this was me, if this was my garden, and a snake came up to me and started talking, I'm out of that garden. Yeah. Or I'm calling somebody, 
God, did you know you have a talking snake in your garden? She doesn't. Snake comes up, she starts talking. Snake starts talking to her, and she talks back to the snake. There is, there is something really, really interesting and fascinating about this to me in, in that the sense that, like, there's something about the way this story starts off that starts off in a way that's not very alarming to Eve. We're going to see the way that plays out. So Genesis verses 4 and 5. Uh, the serpent replies, you won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. And this sets the whole thing up. I mean, like, it's really fascinating to see how fast our origin story changes. It only takes like eight verses. It only takes eight verses for our entire origin story to change. So we're four and five verses into this, and uh, buried in the language there a little bit is this, is this thing that the serpent throws out. He says, God knows you won't die. So what he's doing is he's planting the thought in Eve's mind that God has not been truthful to her. He says, God knows that you're not going to die. He just hasn't told you. And there's a, lot of, there's a lot of essential questions about like what the, what the mistake is that Adam and Eve make here in these verses, you know? Traditionally, it's understood that it's pride, that there's that phrase that like, look, if you eat the tree, if you eat the fruit of the tree, you're gonna become like God. And so there's this thing that, that speaks to, to her pride or to Adam's pride, and they're like, well, we wanna be like God, so let's take the fruit, Right? But there's another aspect that's buried in that language that it, it's also not just pride, it's also a lack of trust that the serpent manipulates. Hey, God hasn't been entirely honest with you. You guys ever doubted anything that maybe God said to you? Like maybe even, <laughs> that's a Sunday school answer, but I don't know if I believe you. Even to talk about the things we talked about last week, God says that you are intimately perfectly, wonderfully made in his image. Anybody ever had trouble believing that? You know? So there's more ways to understand these eight verses than just pride and our rebellious nature. Some of it is also wrapped up with this idea that we're manipulated into not trusting that God is being honest with us. And I know that so many times in my life when I have decided to go my own way, yes, there's pride in there. Yes, there's rebellion in there. But there's also something that has caused me to trust that God's way is the best way for me to live. Even when that way seems hard, even when that way seems like, oh man, I gotta give up an awful lot of things on this, this way, God. It doesn't seem like it's the best way. My doubt has actually usually come to bite me in the rear end, when I doubt that God's way is the best way. So he says, look, God knows your eyes are going to be open. All right, here it comes. The woman, verse 6, was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves, just like that. 
the story's changed. Just like that. Buried in, the, in this language uh, in the Hebrew is that she's looking at the tree. It's not just that she's looking at the tree. The language there is language of lust. Like she's looking at this tree. She desires this fruit. And I think it speaks to God's understanding that lust and desire is a powerful drive in humanity. She wants it. And then she takes it and eats it. And then she gives some to her husband who has been standing there the entire time. Just calm down a little bit. So, so the man is there, just hanging out, watching the talking snake. And even he's not like, that's a talking snake. Um, there's a lot there, obviously. But the most, uh, the most poignant pieces of this story are, 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 are buried, uh, are, 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 are kind of in, this, in these words um, you see, you see, uh, in Hebrew, uh, knowledge is not knowledge that's just here, and it's not knowledge that's out there. To know something in Hebrew is to experience it. Knowledge is experiential knowledge. And so think about that, and think about what the serpent has just told her and what she's just done. He says, look, you're going to know good and evil, and for us, we go, oh, yeah, that's a moral choice. Like, I can choose good or I can choose bad. But in Hebrew, what he's saying is that, look, if you take this fruit, you will experience good, but you will experience evil. So the choice is not just I get to figure out what's good and what's bad in the world. She's just chosen to experience evil for the first time in the garden. That's really tragic to me. And, uh, and, and um, it hits me so hard that as she takes it and as they take it together, the first thing they notice is a relational brokenness. Because in Genesis 2, true, true story, they're naked in Genesis 2. And there are fig leaves all around in Genesis 2, but they don't need them because they're so in that zone with each other and with God. And, and I think that like it, it speaks to me of the idea of, yes, when we, when we have this brokenness inside of us, yes, when we live out of that brokenness, something gets broken between the spiritual and me. Something gets broken between God and me. But you know what the Bible actually points out even more so is what gets broken is between other human beings. I would almost venture to say that biblically speaking, there's no such thing as a victimless crime. That when something is broken, it's not just between God and me. There's always gonna be another human being involved. And the first thing they realize as she experiences this thing that she's never experienced before is she looks and they look at each other and they're like, oh my gosh, things aren't right. Let's go get some fig leaves. I, maybe there's better leaves than a fig, I don't know. Um, and in that, 
I think there's something kind of cool in there that they're, they're desperately trying to fix themselves. They're desperately trying to, to correct the situation. The story goes on <laughs> because then God shows up. Verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. That would have been pretty cool, you know, God walking around the garden in the evening. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked, the Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? This gets real interesting. The man replied. Any woman want to read that? Go ahead. It was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? She said, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. Is this like this? You could take this out of of ancient Near Eastern culture and put this into like my house. You know, who did this? You know, And, and it's crazy because the man essentially tries to blame God. You know, because he says, yes, he says the woman gave me, but what does he add to it? The woman that you gave me, God. God, you set me up for failure. And then she passes the blame to the serpent. And, uh, and that sets this up because uh, God has to do something about this, you know. And uh, he pronounces essentially three statements of judgment. So verses 14 and 15. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, you're cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, especially a guy named Eric. (laughs) And her offspring will will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So the first thing he does is, you know, he uh, eating grass, groveling along the ground, eating dirt, I'm sorry, eating dirt in in the ancient Near Near, uh, East is a, is a, is a pronouncement of pretty stark, like, judgment. You know, you're going to eat dust. You're going to grovel along the ground. And then he basically says, look, there's, there's going to be something that happens now between all humanity and you and all your descendants. And some theologians actually think that this is the first statement of the ultimate good news of the Bible when he says, look, there's going to be someone who's going to be born of woman, a woman named Mary. Is going to show up, and, he's gonna, and his name is going to be Jesus, and he's going to strike your offspring. Because if the serpent is representative of, of Satan, of evil, God's saying, look, someday you're going to pay the ultimate price when this guy who's the offspring of Eve, Jesus, goes to the cross. He's going to destroy evil forever. So that's the first judgment. And he says, uh, notice that he says, you are cursed. And then he turns to the woman. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. And in pain you will give birth, and you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. First thing I want to point out is um, he's, he's going to, when he, when he talks to the man, he's going to use the word curse again. And he uses the word curse with the serpent. He doesn't actually use the word curse with the woman. 
And I, and I just want to point that out. You can do, that, do with that what you will. But he does say, look, there are implications here for, for something. You're going to have more pain in childbirth. Um, but then he also says, look, your relationship, your marriage now, the relationships between men and women are going to be out of whack. And there's lots of different ways to explain that. But I think what spoke to me the most as I was studying for this is like you have to understand Genesis 1, Genesis 2, the vision for man and women, um, relationships between men and women is one of mutuality. When God creates woman uh, out of man, it is as a helper, an equal partner in this creation story. But then when the fruit is taken, things get out of whack. And God's like, basically, look, you're going to be out of whack. That's going to be sort of the natural way things were going to exist from here on out. And it's my work and it's my job as a, as a man to work back to that, that vision of mutuality and equalness in my household. Okay? But I think it's important for me anyway to understand where things started. Where things started was equal. And then it got out of whack. And, and, and Shana and I work to maintain that equality of giftedness. You know, look like, Shana, you're gifted in this area, so I'm going to let you lead in this area. I'm gifted in this area, but it's mutuality. And then he turns to the man. Oof. And to the man, he says, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree, whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed. There the word. There's the word. The ground is cursed because of you. All your life you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. The most important thing for our origin story here, actually, I mean, there's, there's, the, there's the idea that uh, has death entered the garden at this point, and I don't really know the answer to that because in a garden, if any of you are, guys are gardeners, there is death. There is a cycle of life and death in the garden. Some scholars that think that what happens in Genesis 3 is that cycle becomes negative, you know? And so God says, look, from dust you've come, to dust you're going to return. And then he says, look, I'm, you are going to eat from the ground. The ground will give you grain, but in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, let's just put it this way, it's going to be a lot easier to get that grain from the ground. Now there's thorns and there's thistles and it's going to be work. Here's what I find. Uh, well, let's, let's get through the rest of the chapter. Um, then the man, Adam, named his wife Eve because she would be the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing, experiencing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? There's actually two trees in the garden. Tree of the knowledge of good and evil, tree of life. They both show up at the end of the Bible, by the way, in the book of Revelation, which is really amazing. We spoke on that about a year ago. What if they take fruit from the tree of life and eat it? Then they'll live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. And he sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. After sending them out, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. These are like angels, but not like the soft puppy, puffy cheek angels. These are like 
like warrior angels. These are like guys you do not want to mess with. They're stationed at the, at the borders of the Garden of Eden and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. And so, and that's it. Our story is now different. I want to go back to those curses for just a moment because I want you to kind of unpack what the fall, if we just use that language, what Genesis 3, 1 through 8 does to our world. He looks at the serpent and he says, look, because you've done this, there's now a brokenness between you and other animals. And he also says there's a brokenness between you and humanity. And then he looks at the woman and says, now there's a brokenness between human beings. And then he looks at the man and he says, and now there's a brokenness between you and the earth. And if you just look at that list, that's sort of a total list of what brokenness does. And again, I think sometimes we think of this word sin or brokenness or the fall, and we think it's only a human thing, and it's only a thing between me and God. And the biblical story would say, no, that this strain of, of, of sickness or illness or brokenness that we carry inside us actually it affects everything in creation, everything that we see. And that the biblical vision of, of getting back to the garden is not just getting right with God, it's actually getting right with other people. It's getting right with creation. God's vision for his healing of creation is, is so big and so expansive, but so are the effects of the fall. As my man Bob Dylan once said, ain't no use jiving, ain't no use joking, Everything is broken. So where does that leave us? I think, there's, I think there's two things to take away from this in a grand scheme of things. You know, we had these, this idea that we, inter, we introduced last week, plot points. What's the plot point of our fall, if you will? Well, the first plot point is simply this. You cannot live your life as if these words never happened. I think some of us actually like to think that, that we are just all okay and that all of creation is okay and that all of society is okay. I don't know who those people are, but maybe they exist somewhere. I just don't think you can live as if Genesis 3, 1 through 7 doesn't exist. Every time that I act out of some version of myself that is not my highest self, every time I get angry when I tell myself I don't wanna be an angry person, that's Genesis 3, 1 through 7, right? Every time I do the thing that I say I'm not gonna do and doesn't reflect who I really wanna be, but I still do it, anybody do that as well? That's a reminder that not everything is okay in my life. I've showed this to you guys before. It's like sometimes I get, I always like to kind of think of things in terms of, what I can show you guys. And uh, for some reason, plates and pottery showed up in, in my mind as I was preparing for this. And, and there's, there's all kinds of different ways to be broken. This is one of my favorite coffee cups. Um, I've had it for years. And, and this cup, I've showed it to, you, to some of you guys, you might remember this. This cup looks really cool, right? And, and it doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with this cup except there's a crack in it. And if I poured coffee into it, it would leak. 
You can't see the crack from where you stand or where you sit, but it's there. Even if I showed you like a, a, a seemingly, you know, perfect piece of a perfect plate or whatever, you know, if you zoomed in close enough on this plate, you would find that it's not smooth, it's not perfect, it's got imperfections all over it. You know, I think that brokenness and even on a minuscule level, Genesis 3, 1 through 7 is just a part of our reality. And I want to I suggest something else to you guys. I want to go back to the serpent for, for a second. I want to go back to when the serpent shows up, right? He shows up. He starts talking. What's Eve's response? A talking snake. No, it's not. You see, sometimes the brokenness in our life shows up in a lot more natural places than what we'd like to think. You know, I think like if somehow the, the, if, if somehow the adversary or evil or whatever you want to call it, if somehow the story would have started with something that was, that was really freaking Eve out, what would she have done? God, help me. You know, I don't know what it would have taken on top of a talking snake. But a lot of the times our brokenness just comes at us in these everyday little things that we recognize. And it's not, there's no alert there. Nothing to be ashamed, nothing to be freaked out about here. And yet we listen to it, we allow it in our lives, we pay attention to it, and then sooner or later, <coughs> our stories have changed. Has that ever, ever happened to anybody? See, brokenness doesn't always show up with something that makes us run up the flag of surrender and run to our friends and run to God and fall down on our knees. It actually usually starts off with just a, hey, psst, hey, guess what? And we pay attention and we listen. But we can also not go to the other extreme. You see, some of us may have been brought up in a church culture that says, look, the only thing that matters in our story is Genesis 3, 1 through 7. And we've been told, look, it's all bad out there. That's all that dominates the discussion. And maybe even because of that, like, I'm a wicked person. Or maybe you've been told that, like, you're, you're an evil person. And that's not true either. Yes, we are all, all brokenness. We are all broken. This cup, in a way, it doesn't work as a coffee cup anymore. I cannot use it as a coffee cup, but it's still mine. And I think the first thing that, I, that, that this reminds me of is that, you know, God created us to reign and he created us to be icons. And when the brokenness enters the world, being an icon is really difficult and reigning is really difficult. And you know what God does? He doesn't throw us away. He doesn't throw us away. Some of us uh, try to respond to the brokenness of our lives by, by trying to fix our, our, ourselves, you know. And, and like I said, you know, this, cuff, this coffee cup doesn't have an apparent crack, but it's in there. Some of us, our lives look a little bit more like this. We're like, I'm okay, really. I'm okay. And we have these efforts to put ourselves back together and... Uh, Shana was working on this for me yesterday, you know, some Gorilla Glue. What, what can't Gorilla Glue fix? But, like, it's not the prettiest, you know. There's, it's it's kind of there, and I don't know if it fulfills its purpose, but it's, 
You know, some of us, our lives look like this. Anybody? Anybody know anybody whose lives look like this? They're like, I got, I'm okay, really. I'm okay. <laughs> and even in spite of that, like, we still are not called to say that's all there is. Even though some of us are just shattered, that's not all there is. You see, when it happens, you know, just these few verses, when it happens, they've taken the fruit, they look at each other and they're like, something's wrong now. God shows up for his evening walk and they hide. And what's his first response? What's God say? Where are you? Where are you? And he knows that it's happened. I think. I can't imagine that he wouldn't. He knows that things aren't the same anymore. And I think if it was me in the garden... If it would have been a bad day where grumpy Eric was about, I would have been like, someone's, you, they did what? They ate from what? How much clearer would I have to make it? Somebody is going to get something. And they're going to get whatever. I'll make two more just like them. So what does he do? No, where are my children? Where are my children? And so if you're here today and you have this in your life, if your life is, maybe your life is like this, or maybe it's even like this, or maybe it's like this, guess what? God knows already. And his question to you is the same question it was to Adam and Eve. Where are you? Where are you? You see, he's seeking you. He's seeking you. And he's not waiting for you to kind of get your life put back together. He's seeking you right now. His quest is for his creations. The other part that he responds to, the other part of his response in this is in verse 21. He pronounces the curses. And, and, and here's the deal. There's always consequences for our decisions. God does not take us out of the consequences for our decisions. So he says, look, there's consequences for what you've done. But then he says this, verse 21, the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. Now when it happened, what did they do? They knit together fig leaves. And God's like, you know what? Let me do that for you. Let me do that for you. You see, the thing that they noticed that went wrong between them, the first thing was their nakedness. And that's the first thing that God addressed. And I think the thing that that said to me is that at the very point of, of your brokenness is the thing that God wants to heal. That thing that, that you've struggled with, that thing that you won't name, that thing that you're like, boy, yes, if there's, a, if there's Genesis 3, 1 through 7, in the world, I, I know what my thing is in the Genesis 3, 1 through 7 category. I know my thing. God knows it already. That's exactly the point that he wants to heal your life. For them, it was a relational brokenness. So God says, you know what I'll do? Let's do this. Let me make clothes for you. Isn't that a crazy response? 
that the creator of creation, after they have done the thing that he said not to do, instead of reacting as in anger and like obliterating even, I would dare say, if he's all powerful, he sits down and he's like, I'll figure out how to make these things for you. That blows my mind. There's a, there's a passage in uh, the book of Romans. Um, and we talk about how our origin story goes through the life of Jesus. And, and this jumped out at me this week. Um, there's a guy named Paul. He's an early theologian and leader of the church. And he's reflecting on Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Go ahead and put that slide back up, please. He says, yes, Adam's one sin. And I take Adam here meaning Adam and Eve. Their one sin sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. I think what he's talking about right there is that moment where Eve decides that God's not telling her the whole truth and she can't trust him for one reason or another. And I think what it's speaking to furthermore is a a point in Jesus' life when he's in this place called the Garden of Gethsemane and he knows he's about to be arrested and crucified and tortured and he prays to God and he says, the text says, God, let this cup of suffering pass from me. And then he ends with this phrase, but not my will, but yours. And when he gets up from that prayer, he's arrested almost immediately. I think that what happened in that moment was he essentially reversed that centuries, millennia long quandary that had been put as God saying, look, the serpent saying, look, God knows he's not fully to be trusted. Jesus is at this moment where he's like, God, can I trust you? I'm about to go through pain like unspeakable. Can I trust you that this is your plan? And in the moment where he could have made the same decision theoretically that Eve made, he says, not my will, but yours. I think that's the act of righteousness that sets this whole thing back to to being uh, renewed. And in that, Paul's basically saying, look, we have this DNA inside us that's Adam and Eve DNA. So we share, unfortunately, we share Genesis 3, 1 through 7 with Adam and Eve. That it's passed down like bad luggage. But he says there's this other guy. There's this other DNA that we have. That's Jesus' DNA. And Jesus' DNA is more powerful than Adam's DNA. There's this tradition that I, want, that I want to leave you guys with in the, in the Japanese culture uh, with pottery and things that are broken. It's called kintsugi or kintsukori. And what this tradition actually says is that the brokenness that we all carry are actually opportunities for great beauty. And so what, uh, what potters do, or, or they take the cracks in something and they paint them with gold lacquer. And they say, yeah, you know, these things have been broken and fractured. 
But those, that brokenness and that fracturedness is an opportunity to create something beautiful. See, Genesis 3, 1 through 7 is a part of our lives. But we go through life trying to hide those cracks, forgetting that what God has actually done and what he wants to continue to do is to paint them with gold because of what Jesus is and who he's done or what he's done and who he is and make them into something more beautiful. We don't need to pretend like it doesn't exist. We don't need to try to fix it ourselves. We need to allow God into it and let him say, let me take those cracks and let me paint them into something beautiful and new and purposeful. That's our origin story. That's our God. Where are you? And let me take that thing, that point of your woundedness, just like he took and he made those clothes. So let me take that thing that you're wounded with. That's the part that I'm going to heal and turn into something beautiful. That's a great origin story, people. That's an origin story that gets me up every day. It's a story of grace and gifts and renewed life. I'm just wondering where you guys are with that. And um, we're going to take time just to maybe kind of think about our brokenness, but not, not in a way that says that's the only part of the story. So I'm going to invite you into this moment and ask you, what have you been hiding? Or what have you been holding back from God healing? You don't have to hide. He's seeking you. Listen to these words. but 
That last verse of that song says, this is all my hope and my peace. This is all my righteousness. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. You are broken but beautiful. You live in a story that says something went wrong or but that just means you're human. And to be human means to stand in need of a savior. And luckily God provides. Amen. Let's stand for closing prayer.